His victims were often marginalized, their cries for help ignored by the justice system. This man, now considered by the FBI to be the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history, exploited vulnerable members of society to allow his crime spree to last for over 35 years and span states all across the nation. It took multiple law enforcement agencies to bring him to justice. And with recent FBI interviews, the magnitude of this monster is finally being discovered. This week's episode is Samuel Little. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, I think we need to tell everybody what you just said before we started recording. Oh, what that my mom <laughs> asked what the topic. She always likes to get a sneak preview of the topic. She's like, what do you, what's the topic this week? And I said, Samuel Little. And she goes, the mouse? <laughs> and I said, yes, we're doing an hour long about how <laughs> the mouse Samuel Little was a, he was a fiend. If you know the true story of Stuart Little. Or, yeah, Stuart Little. He was a real son of a bitch. You know, the behind the scenes footage of that film set, he was a Whoa. terror. God have mercy. He was awful. Just running up pant legs left and right. <laughs> just <laughs> unsolicited getting Stuart. in people's pants. Stuart, get out of there. You just open up your underwear drawer and he pops out. <laughs> we, I watched that with Ellen now that I think oh, about really? it. Not too long ago. I probably hadn't seen it since it's come out. I was conf- I had never seen it and I was confused because in their world they it's everyone hears him talk. They don't think it's weird. Do any other mice talk? I don't know if there are any other mice in it. They treat him like their child. It's like he's their son. <laughs> in fact, I think they adopt him. I don't remember. It was a weird story There's like line. a judge involved in paperwork. Uh, I don't I don't know, but I know the family thought of him as their son and which is nice i think of lucy as my child yeah but he talked and they could understand him and they lucy talks. talked to to she talk <laughs> um so yeah now that i just remember that i watched that man well i'm sorry that it's yeah little did you. i know he was such a, a perv on set or I, ruined. I wouldn't have let ella watch it it's not Stuart Little we're talking about. Two different Littles. Two different Littles, no relation, because Stuart Little is a little angel. It turns out we uh, were wrong about him, and in fact, he is so tiny and so sweet, and this <laughs> other L- Mr. Little, not, not tiny, not sweet. Not sweet. Tough, no. m- b- bulky, Tough motherfucker. Bulky gentleman who's very violent. 6'3", was a boxer. Yeah. Big dude. Big, violent dude. Yep. What uh, You said... There's a lot of uh, repetition, and I said he basically just did crime for 50 years. Yeah, we're and not even going to talk about all of the murders because we straight up don't have got time. super tedious, and we straight up would be here for a week. But the count is up. He claims to now over 93 women. Yes, this is kind of an ongoing thing, and we've had several requests to do this topic. So here you guys go. Yeah, we're finally doing it. Merry Christmas. <laughs> yeah, right? Your dreams have come true. Yes. Well, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. Let's get into it. 
Samuel Little was born in Riddles, Georgia, on June 7th, 1940, to a, quote, lady of the night, according to the New York Times. Investigators also believe that this woman may have been in jail when she gave birth to Little. Some say that not long after his birth, Little and his mother moved to Lorraine, Ohio, to live with his grandmother, who mainly raised him during his early years. However, in an interview with The Cut, Little reported that his mother abandoned him on the side of a dirt road when he was just a newborn. So we'll see throughout this. He has some very clear recollections and some not so reliable narrations. Perhaps embellishments also. Yeah, I think so. And it's so weird because the reminiscing, it seems really clear. But then when they try to match it up, there's always just something a little bit off. So things, you know, his, of course, his background is going to be the same. Mm -hmm. While attending Hawthorne Junior High, Little was often in trouble with teachers for acting out or falling behind academically. In 1956, at the young age of 16, he had his first run-in with the law in Omaha, Nebraska, when he was picked up for a burglary charge, which resulted in a three-year stint in a, quote, youth authority. After he was released from jail in 1964, Little then headed to Florida, where he lived with his mother, who had since moved there. Among the many jobs he held, at one point he served as a cemetery worker and also worked for the Dade County Department of Sanitation. Throughout the intervening years, Little was arrested for a range of crimes, according to the FBI, that included shoplifting, fraud, drug solicitation, aggravated assault on a police officer, rape, DUI, and breaking and entering charges. He went by the pseudonym Samuel McDowell for some of these arrests, which included, according to Fox News, 26 arrests across 11 states, including Ohio, Maryland, Florida, Massachusetts, California, Oregon, Philadelphia, New Jersey, Arizona, Illinois, and Georgia. Apparently, he would get arrested and then get out pretty easily. Or they would release him on his own, like, say, release on your own recognizance, and then he would just drive out of town. Because <laughs> I think a lot of times if they say, okay, we're going to release you, well, somebody's got a house and a wife and kids. They're not going to go anywhere. He was a drifter, man. He would just, they'd let him out after 24 hours and he'd just bail. It seems to reason that a lot of, uh, Police stations across the country kind of let this guy just fall through the cracks. He could have been held uh, and arrested many, many times to prevent him from doing more crimes. And he just kept catching a break left and right. And I think it's a case of kind of any of the 1970s people we've studied where nobody was doing that. Right. So they wouldn't expect it. Nobody was just leaving town it was they would come back if you tell them you have a court date in a month come back to the court date they would expect if they let him out he would come back for his court date in a month but he just sort of juked the system and, and there was no wanted. communication across state lines no. either so it's not like people in ohio knew oh in maryland this guy's wanted for something we should keep him here he's obviously not reliable or he's gonna risk. skip town yeah Well, during one stint in the penitentiary, Little told LAP detectives that he took up boxing. Eventually, he claims he became a prize fighter as a middleweight. It was these skills he would use in his innumerable murders over the next several decades. He had a tough punch. Tough punch. In September of 1976, Little attacked a woman named Pamela K. Smith in Sunset Hills, Missouri. Pamela was one of Little's victims who was fortunate enough to get away. After Little had attacked her, she managed to run to a nearby house and pound on the door, begging to use the phone. The homeowners found the hysterical Pamela with her hands tied behind her back. Her wrists were secured by an electrical cord and some pieces of cloth. When officers arrived and interviewed Pamela, she revealed that Little had picked her up in St. Louis. The two then traveled the 15 miles from St. Louis to Sunset Hills, 
where Little pulled over, tied her up, and raped her. And that's what he would do, too. would take people 30, 45 minutes, an hour from where they were so they couldn't run back somewhere where they knew. Near the home from where the 911 call was placed, police found a car with a man seated inside. It was Little. Officers also found something else in the car, Pamela's clothes and some of her jewelry. But when confronted with the charges, Little denied raping Pamela. He confessed he had been with her, but claimed, I just beat her. Like it's nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I didn't rape her. I was with her, her, but all I did was beat the shit out of her. God, and he, I mean, very blasé about all the crimes he committed. I don't think he, in his mind, thought there was anything wrong with that. Yeah. That it's, hey, it's my woman. I can, and he did that to another uh, victim where she was trying to stagger away and he said, oh, it's just my old lady. She's just been drinking. She's just drunk. I have to just tell her, show her who's boss. And people just go, okay, like mind their own business. Luckily, these cops did not. Little was put under arrest and convicted for assault. The charge included extra time for, quote, the intent to ravish rape. And Little spent three months in the county lockup. Investigators who later reviewed the case files were initially perplexed at such a short sentence for such a heinous crime. But in the court documents dated from 1976, prosecutors described Pamela Smith as a heroin addict who would miss court appearance dates. Investigators in recent years believe this may have contributed to her not being taken seriously and to Little's lighter sentence. That's what one of the articles called them, the less dead. This is also how he got away with this for so long. Tons of stuff. Attacked women that were on the edges of society, sex workers, drug users, people he thought no one would miss, Mm -hmm. didn't have family or were estranged from their family in Mm -hmm. many cases, and could be missing for weeks at a time without anyone really sending up any red flags. Yeah, definitely. And he absolutely admitted that that he was doing that on purpose. Yeah, for sure. In 1980 and 1981, Little assaulted two sex workers in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Terrified of what Little would do to them if they reported the incidents to the police, the woman initially remained silent. The following year, on September 12, 1982, Little killed a mentally disabled woman named Patricia Ann Mount in Forest Grove, Florida, a small town east of Gainesville. Patricia had been at a beer tavern when she was seen by the other patrons leaving with a man in a wood-paneled station wagon. Apparently, she was a regular at this tavern. Everybody knew her. She was mentally disabled, and her husband was as well, and he would frequently have to come and get her from the tavern because she would drink a lot. She would get into fights. She was kind of a character there. She was a regular, and she would always make a scene, and they said that Little you know, went in there, you know, hit on a couple different women, but then he saw her dancing by herself, and was she was clearly inebriated. And they said it took less than half an hour for him to walk up to her, buy her a drink. And they said it did not take much convincing for her to walk out with him. On the night of Patricia's disappearance, Little had initially approached a hotel laundry worker named Irene Montz. He introduced himself as Samuel McDowell and invited her out for a drink. Montz turned down his offer, but directed Little to a nearby bar. A half hour later, when Little emerged with Patricia and Mount, Irene Montz saw them climb into his ratty station wagon and drive off. That same month, Little picked up 22-year-old Melinda LaPree in Gautier, Mississippi. Melinda's remains were later found in a nearby cemetery. When police questioned women from the area, the two sex workers from Pascagoula bravely came forward with their reports of Little's behavior. Because Gautier and Pascagoula are about five miles apart, investigators began to connect the three crimes. 
Apologies if I'm pronouncing these cities wrong. Yeah, no definitely. need to d- DM me about how I'm pronouncing your cities wrong. So so sorry to everyone it. in the greater Gautier Pascagoula area. Toward the end of 1982, Little was arrested on a shoplifting charge in Gautier. Investigators had interviewed witnesses in Melinda Lepre's murder, who had given them a description of Melinda's assailant. When Little was arrested for the shoplifting, the police were able to match him to the description of the man with whom Melinda was last seen getting into his car. So the cops are doing a little old old school gumshoe work to try to connect them. the dots. Although Little was arrested for the attack on the two sex workers and for Melinda Lepre's murder, the grand jury determined there was not sufficient evidence to bring an indictment. However, rather than let Little go, the authorities in Mississippi sent him to Gainesville, Florida, to face charges for Patricia Mount's murder. After Patricia's body had been found, police knew they were looking for a Samuel McDowell because of Irene Mont's eyewitness account. When Mississippi authorities learned that Little was also wanted for murder in the Sunshine State, they extradited him to Florida to stand trial there. Again, the investigators nowadays who look back at the trial or the grand jury proceedings for, uh, uh, in the Melinda Lepree case, they said it was similar stuff of A, they couldn't pin down time of death, but B, well, I mean, she was kind of, you know, these are sex workers. She's kind of not to be trusted. And because of that, he was able to go kill in Gainesville. But luckily, the police were talking to each other. It's not super far away. So they were able to. Yeah, they didn't have DNA then. Correct. There was a hair fiber situation, but it's like similar. But was it somebody else's? So and- they basically had these eyewitness accounts, but they're also from women that they don't find credible witnesses. Yep. And his victim is someone that they're like. Eh, is it that big of a deal she's really gone? Yeah. Yes, it absolutely is. Yes, it's somebody's family member. It's a human being. Yes. In January of 1984, Little was put on trial for the murder of Patricia Mount. The trial lasted for multiple days, but again, there was insufficient evidence. Although a hair analyst testified to the hairs from Patricia's clothing that matched Little's hair in characteristic, the defense attorney argued that a transfer of hairs like that could have occurred at the tavern by the two simply bumping into each other. The jury acquitted Samuel Little, and he was freed to continue his spree. It's crazy that time after time, arrested, and not indicted by a grand jury, put on trial, and still, he just gets away. It's also, it never phases him. No. It's not like he thinks, man, I got to be careful, or no. I should stop because it's I've like, been arrested. Time to get back it's at it. It's more like, clearly, I can do this and get away with it, so... Why not continue doing it? Why stop? Yeah, I have no reason to because I'll even if I get arrested, even if they put me on trial, I'm still going to get away. In September of 1984, 22-year-old Lori Barros in San Diego went to the police regarding a man that had assaulted her. She said she was taken to an abandoned dirt lot and repeatedly choked until she almost lost consciousness. Then, right before she would pass out, her attacker would demand that she swallow. According to later testimony, Lori claimed... He liked to feel me swallow with his thumb on my neck. It became a game. Right before I'd go unconscious as my eyes started rolling back, he'd let go and ask me to swallow again. Torture. Yeah. It goes and from it's just the sick, killing. Sick gratification, sick yeah. sexual gratification. Eventually, the man knocked her unconscious and left her on a pile of garbage to die. But miraculously, Lori lived. She managed to run to a friend's house who convinced her to call the police. She was badly bruised all over her body, and the whites of her eyes were red from hemorrhaging blood. Her neck was covered with marks indicating she had been severely choked. Lori was nevertheless able to give a description of her attacker to the police. 
The description she gave matched that of Samuel Little. So at this time, he's made his way to California from Florida. He's hit the other coast. All over the place. And they ask him later on, like, where'd you kill the most? He's like, Florida, California. So he'd just drive all across the country, stopping along the way. Just taking little murderous road trips. Pretty much. In October of 1984, the police found Little sitting in a car with another woman in the same location where Lori's attack had occurred just a month earlier. This woman was badly beaten and unconscious. When she awoke, she told the officers that Little had attacked her. They then arrested Little for both this assault and the one from a month earlier. However, rather than assault, the authorities charged Little for attempted murder, considering the viciousness of the attacks. So it seems like as time goes on, we see the authorities now taking women's accounts more seriously, regardless of their backgrounds. Hopefully. Yeah. Once again, Samuel Little was tried for violent crimes against women, with the two cases being tried together. Unfortunately, this jury was also unable to come to a guilty verdict. Rather than acquit Little, the jury announced they were deadlocked. Not wanting to try Little again for the same crimes and risk another deadlock, prosecutors convinced him to plead to lesser charges of assault and false imprisonment, thereby avoiding another trial and putting him behind bars for at least a little while. Little was sentenced to four years in total, but disappointingly, just two and a half years later, in February of 1987, he was let out on parole and free to roam the streets once more. When he talks about going to jail, he's never really bummed out about it. He says, I learned how to paint. I boxed. It was Yeah, he took up painting in one of his first stints. He he discovered his love of art yeah. and and his love of painting. What's crazy is the police, like you said, are trying to do their due diligence. But then when it gets to the jury is when it all falls apart. Yeah. But even then, he's finally put behind bars for four years. Why is he getting out on parole? You guys know what his rap sheet is. Who the hell's letting him out two and a half years later? You think he said, yes, I've been re- rehabilitated. In yes, two I'm- years. Yeah, in two years. Yeah, this time he's in his 40s. He's not changing. No. In fact, he's escalating. Yes. It gets, he starts killing even more people more often. Sinisterhood will be right back after this word from our sponsor. Hey, y'all, we are supported by FabFitFun, and we want to let you know the 2019 Winter Box is on sale now. It is pretty incredible, too. Fantastic. FabFitFun, for those of you who don't know, you should know, it is a seasonal women's lifestyle box, and it comes with so many full-size awesome things, and they are all premium, primo, as my mom would say, and the <laughs> value is usually about $200 a box, Yes, and it's all yours for a low, low price. Of $39.99. Normally, it's $49.99, but if you go to fabfitfun.com and enter our code CREEPY, you get $10 off your first box, making it $39.99 and making it a perfect gift for the upcoming holiday season. And the really awesome thing about this subscription box is that you get the opportunity to customize your box. You don't just get whatever you get. You get what you get, what we all get, which this month was some phenomenal things. One of the something everybody gets is something everybody needs. It is the makeup eraser. The makeup eraser is it's changed my life. I love it. I'm going to say it's changed my life. It really has. I'm telling you, I have stopped using all these wipes that would break me out and I get to use something that's hypoallergenic. It's good for the environment. It's soft and it's bright pink so I can always find it in the laundry. It's great if you're traveling too or you don't have access like face wash. All you do is wet it and it somehow magically takes off all your makeup it's it's incredible. I don't it, understand it. And even eye makeup, which I always yeah. have, a, I struggle so much with like different oil products and I don't have to use them anymore. It's great. 
I also got to pick some Kate Somerville goat's milk face lotion, which was great. Ooh. Some very cozy faux fur slippers and a amazing color switch makeup brush remover. So now when I'm doing all of my makeup, I don't have to wipe all my brushes on towels or myself or my clothes. Just wipe it over this little thing and it changes it. It erases it so I can just uh, do my do my eyeshadow in half the time I was. I love it. I got a very cozy faux fur blanket because I like to cozy up next to the fire and watch my favorite shows. And I also got a shower radio from Bando so I can listen to all my podcasts and audiobooks while I shower so I can learn while I wash myself. So, again, go to FabFitFun.com, enter our code CREEPY, and get $10 off your first box. And not to mention, you can go to the super fun community at FabFitFun, check out FabFitTV, and also FabFitFun community to connect with other people and talk about how amazing this magic eraser is. Guys, do it. Do it for yourself. Do it for a loved one. It's the holiday season. Just do it. Head to FabFitFun.com and enter CREEPY. Well, in July of 1987, just five months after Little was let out on parole, he brutally strangled 41-year-old Carol Alford. He then left her body in a Los Angeles alley. At the time of her murder, Carol's adult daughter, Brenda Gordon, was eight months pregnant with her first child. Around that time, several women had been killed by Lonnie David Franklin Jr., also known as the Grim Sleeper. Brenda was worried that her mother, who was addicted to cocaine, could have been the victim of someone like the Grim Sleeper. But at the time, authorities had no other leads or anything that pointed them to the real culprit, Samuel Little. Five months out of the slammer and he's already. This was also the grim sleeper. It was also the same time as Richard Ramirez Mm -hmm. and seven other serial killers in L.A. were all doing their thing at the same time. And L.A. had a lot of pockets of really crime ridden areas. So I think the police force were just overwhelmed, too. Two years later, on August 14th, 1989, Little strangled 35-year-old Audrey Nelson and left her body in a dumpster in Los Angeles, nude below the waist. Several years earlier, Audrey had left her L.A. home to become a makeup artist in New York City, but instead fell into a difficult life of sex work and drugs. According to Gagers Daily, Audrey gave birth to a daughter, but Audrey's lifestyle led her parents to step in to raise their grandchild. At the time of her death, Audrey had tried leaving behind her hard life in New York to return to L.A. to be closer to her daughter and family. That's when Samuel Little cut her new life short. So, again, someone else who was on the kind of struggling and on either in the The outskirts of society. uh, Yeah. So sad, too. She was trying to better herself and start over. And come back and be with her daughter and try to be a mom. Yeah. Less than a month later, on September 3rd, 1989, Little murdered again this time strangling 46-year-old Guadalupe Apodaca in South Los Angeles. Her body was then found in an industrial garage, also nude below the waist. All three of these women were killed in an area in L.A. known for rampant cocaine usage and crime. And the other problem with finding women who perhaps were abusing drugs in an area that's known for drug abuse, that sometimes the way in which he killed them wouldn't leave marks if he strangled them quickly. So in the case of uh, the previous woman where he was like strangling or letting go strangling, Mm -hmm. but if he just strangled them quickly and left, they sometimes wouldn't even see marks or he would punch them so they would be unconscious and they couldn't scratch them or anything. So they wouldn't have any other evidence around them. So it's hard for, you know, for police patrolling that area to think oh this was clearly a murder versus well this could have been something that an OD. Wrong. yeah and again 
even if it was a murder, they see those a dime a dozen in those neighborhoods yeah. and they're not going to really bat an eye about it. Yes. Yeah. The LAPD found itself stumped on all three cases. They had no leads and were unable to close any of the three women's murders. But each of these women would play an important role in Little's final apprehension over two decades later. In April of 2012, Detective Mitzi Roberts of the LAPD received a grant from the FBI to conduct DNA searches on cold cases. When Roberts ran a search on the DNA from Audrey Nelson and Guadalupe Apodaca, there was a hit. The suspect was Samuel Little. Yeah, this whole story is the importance of VICAP and law enforcement agencies talking to each other. Gotta communicate. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's the same with like the Golden State Killer when they first started realizing these rapes were tied to these homicides. Okay, there's some sort of connection and we can trace whoever was in those places at those times. And just like Golden State, when he was committing all of his crimes in the beginning, no one was talking across state lines. Correct. That's why these men are allowed to get away with this mm-hmm. for so long, because it's not until technology advances and people start communicating that they all of these yeah, dots start getting connected. And then the kind of good thing about finally sharing that information is that they can then match. He was getting arrested in a lot of these places. Sure. But he was getting arrested for shoplifting from a tire store or shoplifting from a convenience store. He was being put on trial for murder. And that too. But then just not getting convicted. Yeah. So... If people had been communicating more back then, they would have seen that there was a pattern developing much earlier than they discovered there was. And he one. actually got uh, arrested with one of his victims and he said, oh, I can't really remember her name, but it was April of, I think, like 1978 or 1979. And I think it was near Little Rock. And the FBI could go in, talk to Little Rock PD and say, can you go through your records of this time? And they found that when he got arrested and he they found the person's name. So it's a whole matter of historical evidence and of not just the DNA evidence, but also his whereabouts. The following month, Little was arrested in Lake Charles, Louisiana, for possession of drug paraphernalia after being found with a crack pipe. Rather than remand him into custody, Little was released pending trial. However, when Detective Roberts from the LAPD called the Louisiana authorities and asked them to bring Little in, they were unable to locate him. So surprise, surprise. He ran off. He ran ran off. He's never going to stay. Yeah. Little, meanwhile, was across the country in Louisville, Kentucky. On September 25th, 2012, he used an ATM card to make a purchase at a mini mart. The sheriff's deputies in Louisiana had been tracking Little since he disappeared after his arrest for possession of the crack pipe a few months earlier. When they saw the hit on the card, they called Detective Roberts in L.A. So, again, it's these agencies working across state lines and then she's calling the Kentucky and communicating with each other. Yes. And then she's getting help from the D.A.'s office. And so they're all kind of working in concert. It takes a village, Heather. It really does. Authorities soon tracked Little to a homeless shelter near the Louisville Mini Mart, where they arrested him and extradited him to California to face drug charges from a previous arrest. In November of 2012, Little was sentenced in Los Angeles. While he served that three-year sentence, his DNA was tested against the evidence collected from Carol Alford's 1987 murder. Just like with Audrey Nelson and Guadalupe Apodaca, it was a match. Initially, Detective Roberts wanted to use the drug arrest in California to get him from wherever he was at. And it turns out that he ended up he was in Louisville. But that's not usually an offense that you can be extradited for. But she worked with the DA and said Beth Silverman, who did a phenomenal job prosecuting this case. And Detective Roberts said, listen, it's a petty ass drug charge. But what we really need is him physically 
not to squirm away again. So can we work together to get this? Do y'all know he's going to leave town yes. and kill again? And she's basically like, look at this fucking DNA of it. Like, he's the one that did it. We just need his body to be immo- not movable. We need to have eyes on him. Pretty much. He's gotta, I mean, he's literally just got to be locked in a room so we can get this process and and pre- and bring these charges against him. If he's not behind lock and key, he's going to get in a car and drive off. Yes. That's what he did every day of every of, since he was a teenager. In January of 2013, Samuel Little was charged with the murders of Audrey Nelson, Guadalupe Apodaca, and Carol Alford. He denied his guilt, telling officers in an interview obtained by the Associated Press that I'll just be in the wrong place at the wrong time with people. Just just brushing it off. Wrong. I, I, I didn't do it. I just happened to he be had, there. Uh, even in and we'll get into how a lot of this has come out with these current interviews. He's 79 now. He's still got all the confidence in the world. Mm-hmm. He doesn't think there's a big disconnect. Yeah. I don't know if it's mental health. Just honestly thinking he didn't do anything wrong or a bit of column A, a bit of column B. But he has never identified himself as um, a rapist. Yes. For sure. He gets real pissed off if you call him that. During the trial, prosecutors brought Little's surviving victims to the stand. The testimony from those women, who all identified Little as the man who attacked them, were the blueprint in the case, according to Deputy District Attorney Beth Silverman, as quoted in the L.A. Times. Yeah, they every single one of them told the exact same story. You know, I was in the parking lot of X. Was it a convenience store, a bar, a restaurant, a hotel? I get approached by a guy who says, do you want to get a drink? Do you want to have go do have sex? Do you want to go do drugs? I said, yes. He took me about 15 to uh, 15 minutes to an hour away. At some point he flipped out and they said he would say he would just look over and he would put his hand on their neck. And then they would freak out and he like loved that part. And then he would usually punch them if they started to fight. And then it was it was M.O. to a T story after story after story. Every woman on the stand had the and same story. And he masturbated a lot of times yes. while strangling while them strangling well. them. And one of the women who testified said, you know, I fought my hardest to get away from him and I wanted somebody to help me. People wouldn't help. He would say, oh, this is my old lady, you know, whatever. Or she said, you know, I went to the cops and they said, yeah, okay, whatever. Sure, somebody attacked you because she was a sex worker. Yeah. And she said, nobody gave a shit about me. No, it was all these marginalized women that he knew society and especially police weren't going to take seriously. Mm -hmm. And if you're in a bad area that's known for crime and, and, and sex work, and a woman stumbling around asking for help. No one in that neighborhood wants to be a snitch. No one's yeah. going to get wrapped up in that. They've all got their own stuff going on. So, yeah, I mean, he knew what areas to target. Yeah, definitely. That, where he could definitely just escape into the dark of night. Well, after decades of not being held accountable for his crimes, in 2014, a jury finally convicted Samuel Little for the murders of Carol Alford, Audrey Nelson, and Guadalupe Apodaca. They sentenced him to three consecutive life sentences in prison. So finally, finally, it takes the hard, hard work of Detective Roberts and ADA Silverman to just say, we're taking this all the way. And bless them for doing that. That is Mm -hmm. a thankless job Mm -hmm. that is consumes your life. And they somebody finally stepped up and was like, 
These women's deaths aren't going to be. They were somebody. They were somebody's yes. mother, somebody's daughter, just somebody at all. They were human beings. And you don't say, oh, we're going to bring their deaths to justice. Exactly. Regardless that it was from 1987, 1989, yeah. whatever. No, this is important. Well, from the 1970s, when his killing spree began to his arrest in 2012, Samuel Little was responsible for the rape and murder of a confirmed 50 women, making him the most prolific serial killer in history. However, until recently, Little was the only person that had knowledge of this. It wasn't until May of 2018 when Texas Ranger James Holland and several FBI analysts approached Little regarding a cold case out of Odessa, Texas, that authorities became aware of the magnitude of this monster. The FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP, had also been investigating Little and discovered that they could place Little in Odessa at the time of the unsolved murder. When the FBI shared this tip with the Texas Rangers, arrangements were made to visit Little in California, where he is currently serving his three consecutive life sentences. Well, in other words, it's a good thing he's locked up because you know where to find him to ask him about these things. (laughs) Also, once again, they're communicating. Yeah, sharing We have multiple law enforcement agencies communicating with each other, and that's how this stuff gets solved. And you appreciate that they don't say, well, he's already in jail. Fuck it. It's like, right. no, we want to go and find out. We, for this person, like you said, it's somebody's family. That was a human life. We want to find out what happened, get their family closure, and finally bring somebody to justice, even if they're already serving three life Absolutely. sentences. Texas Ranger James Holland managed to build a rapport with Little and gain his trust. In an interview with Sharon Alfonsi for CBS, Holland said he got Little to open up to him by avoiding the things that normally work for investigators. You avoid things like remorse and closure for the family. Yeah, because Little didn't give a shit about remorse. No, and Alfonsi asked him, is that just because serial killers don't care about that? And he was like, yeah, that's not what they want to talk about. No, they want to talk about the excitement. Yeah. That they liked it. Not it's not this isn't a one off. They don't want to be feel like they're being made to uh, guilty, be guilted into anything. Yeah. Yeah. I don't I don't think he feels bad. No, not at all. I think he's he feels joy. He loves talking about yeah. it and drawing. In the interviews beginning in May of 2018, Little voluntarily provided details on murders he committed over the course of 40 years, spanning the entire United States. Despite now being 79 years old and in poor health, Little was able to tell investigators the total kill count by city and state. Jackson, Mississippi, one. Cincinnati, Ohio, one. Phoenix, Arizona, three. Las Vegas, Nevada, one. Little had only a few demands in exchange for all of his information. One, he wanted assurances from authorities they would not seek the death penalty. And two, he refused to look at any crime scene photos that showed decomposing bodies or skeletons. Because he has very vivid memories of them yeah. alive and t- drew, draws their pictures. I think it'll mess it up for him. Yeah, he wants to imagine them in their final moments. That's what gets him off. That's what that's what his thing is. If It's just like a non-psychopath person imagining their loved one before death you know like Mm -hmm. a lot of people don't want to don't like to go to funerals or Mm -hmm. open casket because they don't want to see their loved one like that they want to remember him in the good times it's the opposite for him yeah because he he it's like he relives it oh he 100 percent does little speaks of the murders with wistful reminiscence becoming excited and animated when describing how he strangled the women In an interview with CBS News, James Holland recalled what it was like to watch Little reflect on his past crimes. With Sammy, there's an indication of visualization of when he's thinking about a crime scene. He'll start stroking his face, and as he's starting to picture a victim, you'll see him look out and up 
And you can tell he has this revolving carousel of victims and it's just spinning. And he's waiting for it to stop on the one that he wants to talk about. Holland said he considers Little a flat-out genius. Yeah, because of his memory and yeah. recall ability. And he and can Alf- remember Alphonse details. was like, a genius, really? He's like, a- absolutely. Mm-hmm. The fact that he can remember all of these details. And Alphonse says, I can't remember the the woman that checked me out at the hotel this morning. I definitely couldn't remember someone's, a face from 40 years ago. But they are burned on his brain like it happened yesterday. It's so bizarre. And he'll remember. That's how much they meant to him. Yeah. These murders, I mean, each one. meant to him in a dark and twisted way. Each yeah. one was a Almost like trophy. He, he owned them. And yeah. now, now they're in his head forever. One of these victims Little chose to discuss with Holland was a woman Little referred to as Marianne. Little recalled how in 1971 or 1972, he met an attractive transgender woman in her late teens at a bar called the Pool Palace in Miami, Florida. The two met twice, first at the Pool Palace, then again at another bar in the nearby city of Overton. After driving to Marianne's apartment together in Little's gold Pontiac Le Mans, one of Marianne's several roommates asked the pair if they could go out and pick up a can of shaving cream. Little recalls how he and Marianne drove north to buy the shaving cream. He then turned off on a driveway near a sugarcane field and strangled the woman to death. Afterwards, he continued driving until he saw a secluded spot near the Everglades. Sure that the woman would never be found in such a muddy, brush-covered area, Little drug Marianne's body nearly 200 yards and left her there. To this day, Little believes that Marianne's remains have never been found. The FBI is currently asking the public for any help in identifying this woman, Little calls Marianne. And you can also go and see the drawing that he did of her on the, we'll link it in the show notes on the FBI's website. They still have several outstanding unidentified victims that, and they also warn that his memory, he says, I think it was Marianne or it could have been Marion or it could have been Mary or, you know, he's, he can be off a little bit on certain details, but the drawings they've matched exactly. And usually the dates are reasonably close. Yeah. Holland said they have over. 50 drawings at this point and each week they'll get a couple more in and he said you'll look at them and immediately know which victim it was Mm -hmm. that's how spot on his recollection of these women are take a photographic memory yeah it really is holland was shocked at the amount of details a 79 year old man has been able to provide regarding the surroundings of all the different crime scenes what the victims were wearing and in the case of denise roberts the unsolved murder out of odessa that she wore dentures, a fact never released by police. There's just been detail after detail that, yeah, he's the only one that can know. Never was made public, and he remembered all of that. Little also discovered an interest in art during one of his earliest jail stints and took to drawing portraits of the women he murdered. Holland claims his office now has over 50 drawings that have all been confirmed as victims of Little. Some of these victims date back to the 1970s, Reiterating once again how fresh these crimes are in Little's dark mind. That's just crazy to be able to remember all the way back to the 70s. Dude, I can't, I seriously can barely remember what I did this morning. Yeah. I also have a really bad memory. Yeah. But if something, I, I also feel like things that I do remember from my childhood or, you know, like growing up or whatever must have made a significant impression on me. Mm-hmm. I often think about that. I'm like, I remember that because I felt shame or something yeah. like that or, or whatever it was. These are very significant. <laughs> significant events that are taking place in his life. If 
But the fact that there were so many and he remembers every single one of them so clearly, that's what's insane. Yeah. he. So uh, my friend of mine, Lindsay Littleman, and I share books with each other. And she was just telling me about a book that is about the way your brain captures memories and that moments are the things that you remember. And it's in the context of marketing and making, you know, if someone comes and visits your restaurant and you do something special for them, they'll have a good feeling. They'll remember that. And what they'll remember is this feeling associated with this moment. And even if you spill something on their table, that the brain literally will forget that part. And they'll only focus on your brain will only focus on capturing the most significant thing from that memory. And then it's like a hierarchy. Then it captures the most significant of the significant. So like you had a nice time at 10 different restaurants, but you had a really, really, really good time at restaurant X or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you'll like that one better and remember it or whatever. It's like that quote, people won't remember what you, how you made them feel, what what you said said or did, but they'll always remember how you made them feel. Yeah, absolutely. So it's that, I think his brain has a larger capacity maybe, but that these are so significant that each one of them, he just remembers with like clarity. Well, he's remembering how they made him feel too, which was great. It turns out, Mm -hmm. unfortunately. Little also spoke with Jillian Lauren in an interview for The Cut. In it, he reminisced about the first woman he killed. She was a big old blonde, round about the turn of the new year, 1969 to 1970. Miami, Coconut Grove. She was a hoe, a prostitute. She was sitting at a restaurant booth, red leather, real nice. She crossed them big legs in her fishnet stockings and touched her neck. It was my sign from God. He thought these women were his for the taking. Like that one. I don't know which one I want. Oh, she touched her neck. Oh, that must be the one yes. I should. It's a way take. of justifying. Oh, this is out of my control. Someone else is telling me to God do this. God told me to do it. He also said when he was little, he didn't think women were humans. He thought they were angels. He claims. Wow. Yeah. And he went to collect. He didn't know that they went to the bathroom. He didn't know that they did anything like that because he just considered them these like untouchable angelic beings. Wow. I mean, that's it's de- even if it's exalting, it's still dehumanizing. Uh, yeah. God. Yeah. They're not humans to him. They're no, things. They're, ta- they're objects the, for the taking. Yes. Little went on to tell Lauren that no one could possibly understand how much he loved the women he killed or as he calls them my babies. He says that thinking about them and replaying their murders is the only thing getting him through his days in prison. When Lauren asked him how it felt to kill them, Little replied, Oh, it felt like heaven. Felt like being in bed with Marilyn Monroe. God. Yeah, he loves it. He, I mean, I've watched some of these interviews. It's if I asked you, uh, hey, tell me about um, that good pe- that pizza place you went to the other day. It was so good. And you were like, oh, yeah, it was really great. That's how he talks about killing yeah. these. Women. Oh, yeah, that one. I remember her. Yeah. Oh, man, it was. He laughs throughout it. He tries to like uh, be find camaraderie with the interviewer and, and kind of be jovial and stuff. Imagine sitting across from that, too. You're mm-hmm. like, this guy's talking about how he killed this woman. And I feel like he's telling me about like his his new grandbaby that just got born. That's how excited he is. For the most part, moment. he's quite jovial. They did say he would he could have a cross moment where he'd be narrow his eyes. But it's almost usually like with, if the interviewer said something that he found to be insulting you're a rapist or you're yeah whatever mm-hmm. but he it's almost like terry rasmussen where he was talking when he was initially getting brought in mm-hmm. and kind of joking around with the detective and then duh, like it changes yeah 
And you're like, the dark oh. side. It's oh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Yeah, you're like, oh, we absolutely could be driving down the road and you turn and just yeah. murder me. In another interview with Holland, Little recounted the murder of one of his victims from North Little Rock, saying, She was fighting for her life and I'm fighting for my pleasure. The way it's so dismissive yeah. of a human life. He speaks of them as if they were nothing. Just objects to him yeah. that he gets to keep in his head. Beth Silverman, the L.A. County prosecutor who spoke to the New York Times, is one of many investigators who believe Little's murders were sexually motivated. However, Silverman told the Times that Little gets offended should anyone call him or imply that he is a rapist. Rape would have been impossible, according to Little, because he suffers from erectile dysfunction. Nevertheless, Silverman told the Times that the strangulation of his victims is the way that he gets sexual gratification, which is also evident in the semen left behind on his victims' bodies and around the crime scenes. Yeah, I definitely don't think it was he. I think he did sexually assault some of the victims because they did claim that. And I, I think that's well within what he's capable of doing. For sure. But perhaps as he got older, even and that was the more murders he committed and that becomes the only way that he can get that gratification. Then I could see that he would say something like and it's so weird because you see that with some of these killers where they say, oh, well, I'm not that kind of a killer. Well, I would never do that. Mm-hmm. It's like offended. They're offended at the implication. Like I, what I do is clean. These are my babies. They're angels. I would never do that. Holland said that he referred to him as a rapist in one of the interviews, and he just got dark and and he could tell. He, he, Holland said at that moment, I was like, oh, a step too far. I gotta, I gotta oh, rein shit. it back in. And he kind of caught himself, and he was like, I know you're not though. I, I know you're a killer. And he said Little got this look of like almost pride and just looked at him like, yeah, that is how I want to be identified. You get I, am, me. I am a killer. Yeah. I'm not a rapist. I'm a killer. You understand me. But that's weird to get that. And I guess not weird, but that shows how good the Texas Ranger Holland is at his job. But to get that rapport and it's how deep do you go in? Because if you're the only one he'll talk to, mm-hmm. and it sounds like he will talk to others, but it sounds like he really w- openly and enjoys talking to James Holland, that, that you're kind of stuck. You're the guy that he wants to talk to. So yeah. you got to go back in there. It's like a mind hunter situation. Yeah, absolutely. What Holland's job mainly focuses on doing that. He interviews people that there's very little DNA evidence in the case. You got to get him to admit it. It's all just, yeah, building this rapport. So He's very skilled at what he does. As of October 3rd, 2019, Samuel Little has confessed to the murder of 93 women. So far, the FBI has actually verified his involvement in 50 of those murders. The remainder of the confessions are pending confirmation. And the FBI says we have no reason to believe that they're not true. Oh, yeah. 93. Little killed at a rate of over two and a half victims per year committing the 93 murders over a 35-year span from 1970 to 2005. In all, his rap sheet is over 100 pages long and includes crimes in 24 states. Although he began murdering around 1970, his criminal history began long before that. Deputy District Attorney for L.A. County, Beth Silverman, told the Star Advertiser, It's the craziest rap sheet I've ever seen. The fact that he hasn't spent a more significant period of his life in custody is a shocking thing. He's gotten break after break after break. Although he had been arrested nearly 100 times in various states, Little spent less than a decade in prison over the course of his 50-year crime spree before finally being sentenced to three consecutive life sentences in 2014. He literally spent his whole entire life stealing, burglarizing, and killing. Yeah. 
That's and only in the past ten years has he really had to pay any kind of yes. time for that. Otherwise, it was just over and over, narrowly escaping. It's one of those things where, if just one or two things had been different, do you wonder how many lives could have been saved? We we talked about that with Ted Bundy too. Yeah. Of he, if any, he, if that jury in Florida would have gotten mm-hmm. him, you know, or because back then Florida had the or death one of the <laughs> city hadn't been like, we trust that she'll come back for this court date, right? We'll just let you go. You seem legit. Yeah. The FBI estimates a number of factors contributed a little falling under the radar for so long. First, he chose to attack women who were marginalized and vulnerable. Second, a majority of his murders predate any DNA testing technology. He also killed in a nearly undetectable manner, utilizing his skills as a former boxer to often stun or knock out his victims, rendering them unable to fight back as he strangled them to death. One victim he punched so hard in the stomach it broke her spine. That's... So very hard. He's he was very strong in his, and these are peak. he's very big. He's six three, a big dude. These are small women, and he was strong. I mean, he was a trained yeah. boxer, so he knew how to hit too. Mm-hmm. And I think back then, you know, you you could leave DNA everywhere. Yeah. Now, luckily, they preserved it because some of the DNA that matched him was actually under women's fingernails, some of the victims' fingernails. But I think you know, you just didn't even it didn't even occur to you not to do that. No. And I wonder, I mean, because he killed up to 2005, why he wouldn't have been more careful. But I think you figure you get away for so long. Fuck it. Why stop now? I think being like he like Silverman said, his break after break after break gave him this confidence of I'm untouchable. Yeah. And even he was getting arrested. He didn't care. I think the urge to kill was stronger than any fear of being arrested or being put behind bars. And the sad thing is he's, you know, in his 70s now. If were he free, I don't think he would be capable of killing still. They said he's it's the of, same thing with Golden State. That yeah, they had their fun and now this is their retirements to be in prison and that's just so it, it's good that they're arrested. It's good that they're convicted, but you have this nasty feeling that it's just not fair that they got to do yeah. everything they wanted to do and their and twilight yeah, years where now they have to pay for it, yeah. but fuck it, they were going to sit around anyway. Now he can sit around and pay He's almost 80 years old. He's not going to be around for much longer. He's in no. poor health. He's probably getting taken better care of in prison than he would if he was just left to his own devices. Yeah. So it's it just it's justice, but too little too late. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Sergeant Michael Mangaluzzo interviewed Little in 2019 about a 36 year old cold case in Marion County, Florida. Sergeant Mongaluzzo told the New York Times that he believes Little evaded arrest for so long because of his victim profile. In fact, Little admitted to as much, telling Sergeant Mongaluzzo, I can go into my world and do what I want to do. I won't go into your world. And there you have it. He, he drew knew, a line. He knew that if he went into an area where, and killed a well-to-do white woman, a lot of people were going to raise a lot of eyebrows and come looking for him. But no, he stayed on the fringes. He stayed in beer. In the areas he knew, too. I mean, he was a junkie, too. Yeah, beer joints and drug dealing places and was able to hunt almost like the Cleveland Strangler. And again, women who said, this this thing happened to me. I'll never forget the Cleveland Strangler. That woman said, there are dead bodies in this house. I saw them. And the detective said, yeah, right, crazy lady. You're a sex worker. Who cares what you think? And more people die because of it. And just think years, decades worth of women were killed. Because they because were not believed. They weren't listened to and believed. Mm-hmm. So what do we think? Man. 
He gets a Golden Juice Award. I know that much. Absolutely. Just somebody that just absolutely overjoyed, rejoices in taking a life. I think that's what ultimately that control and the sexual gratification he got. The gratification comes from, though, like possession. Yeah. She's mine now. Yeah. And he ha- he can think of her whenever she wants or whenever he wants, and he can draw her whenever he, he loves wants. to do it. He said he admitted he lays at night. That's what gets him through replaying those. Jeez, when I lay in bed day. at night, I think about or I try to like good memories. Yes, he's re- to them though; those are his good memories. It's true. They say you sleep better if you think about three things that you're grateful for for that day. That it, well, I bet he sleeps like a baby then because I he gets, imagine he's very grateful that he did horrible things, got to take these women's lives. Yeah, God. But you know what? This is a good thing that there are people out there like Detective Mitzi Roberts and Beth Silverman James and James Holland, Holland who are working hard to not and who are taking the time to solve cold cases because the families of these they said that the women who testified at his trial the 2013 trial that Guadalupe Apodaco's son was at the back and when one of the women left the stand he stood up and hugged her so hard and said thank you for doing this for my mom because it's hard I mean it's hard to recount being attacked that viciously and sit on the stand and remember something even if it was 30 years before Mm -hmm. and the fact that they would come forward and testify and he just said thank you so much so it means so much to these families even 30 years after 20 or 30 years after to have the closure at least to know somebody's being punished for what they've done what they've done 93 women who might have just had unmarked graves have these people not started this interview process and and gotten him to talk so and there's still more so if you go to that we'll put the link in the show notes but the fbi is asking for information for several of the unidentified uh, women and there are drawings done by little's own hand yes and the hand that strangled them and took their life from them and fairly thorough descriptions of at least reasonably locations and years if not exact yeah oh it was uh, in or around st louis or whatever but uh, if anybody knows of anything. Yeah. That can and they're really next. trying to get more information out of him because he is in bad health and his memory is going. And they're trying to get him before he goes. I mean, as long as he was out there killing, 93 might be just the beginning. He may have, you know, you think he he's a genius with this great memory, but at that many, you don't know if he's going to say, oh, no, there was another and another yeah. and another. So get him out while you can. Yeah. Well... This was a doozy. Let us know what you yeah. guys uh, think. We'll post everything like Heather said in the show notes. So you never know who might be listening that. Yeah. A family say, you know, could help with something like that. A mom, an aunt, a cousin, a grandma, somebody that went missing uh, any time because it's the time of, of his killing was so long and mm-hmm. 35 years. So it may be something you can help with. Mm hmm. Sinisterhood will always remain free, but if you wish to donate to our Patreon to help offset the cost of making and hosting the show, you can visit Sinisterhood.com and click on Patreon in the top right corner. You'll get some sweet perks like Patreon-exclusive content, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group, a special shout out on the show and a monthly bonus mini-sode. We're also doing a fun thing on the Patreon called Mixed Bag where we each come and share something that we love. It could be a book, a movie, a TV show, an article, anything that we're excited about. So we are so excited to have a Christy Mixed Bag this week. Yep, we're going to record it right after this and I got three things that... Uh, I'm so excited. <laughs> pretty, pretty different yet all interesting. I'm so excited. And also make sure you stick around after the show to hear your special Patreon shout outs. 
And many of you guys have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want some cool Sinisterhood swag of your own, like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop in the top right corner. There's still time to get someone a Christmas Hanukkah Kwanzaa present. Anything you need Just for. Just a... A winter present. If you want to chill around your house in a comfy baseball tee, it's a good. I like hoodie. I like a good long sleeve tee or a hoodie in the winter. So they are available for you. Sinisterhood.com and shop in the top right corner. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. It means so much to us and really helps small podcasts like us get more exposure. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod and like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. Christy, where are you at? I'm on Twitter at Christy or GTFO and on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace. Heather? I am on Twitter at MCK versus the world. And I posted a video of myself making a disgusting egg McHash brown on Instagram at Heather versus the world. <laughs> What's an egg McHash brown? It's where you t- there's an instructional video, but it's where you take an egg McMuffin that doesn't have a muffin part. You get two hash browns and you put the meat and cheese. I think cheese that sounds just dis- delicious. It's amazing. It's so good. Oh, so it's not disgusting. Well, it's, it's delicious. Just, it's just a lot of food, but oh. it's real good. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, y'all, we are taking the next two weeks off for the holidays. We will see you in the new year with an all-new episode on January 1st. But in the meantime, we will be releasing weekly Patreon content, so be sure you check that out. We hope you have a very happy and restful holiday season, and we will see you in 2020. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout-outs. Megan O'Mara. Lauren Knobloch. Danielle Penn. T-Bone. Kate Harwell. Karen McGrogan-Gallo. Ashley Craft. Holly Milton, Tammy, Heather Pollock, Dee Dee Peets, Lisa Margolis, Kendra Nelson, Abby Ether, Jordan Seiler, and Amber Wilburn. Thank you guys so much for supporting the show. We could not do it without you. We love you. Thanks so much. Keep it creepy. Sinister.